0: So as you may know, I was uh, overseas for uh, a week and a half. Uh, I started in Germany uh, on a bit of a, what, a reformation tour. So this Tuesday marks the 500th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed 95 theses the onto the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. I'm sort of unwittingly set in motion a, a political, economic, uh, governmental, uh, it, re- revolution, it changed the family, it changed the church, it changed government, it changed worship, it changed work, it changed just about everything, and uh, it, it the anniversary, 500th anniversary is uh, Tuesday, so I was over for a Reformation tour, sort of retracing Luther's steps, and, uh, and then I went from there to Istanbul, where uh, I believe we've got a slide of Istanbul, so ama- an amazing you know city uh, twenty plus million uh, that that bridges both Europe and Asia it is uh, where we have Christchurch mission partners uh, who we 've been supporting for uh, about ten years and they are working with Muslim refugees in istanbul so there 's two million refugees in istanbul, so syrian and from iran and and from Afghanistan and eritrea and and nigeria they're just flooded into. Istanbul. And so um, our, our partners there have been working among the refugees, and they're doing great work. They're seeing uh, Muslims come to faith. They're providing frontline support through a variety of programs. I, I worked one day in the MOPS, one of the five MOPS programs that they have and you had to have a ticket to get in and they had a bouncer at the door uh, keeping people out because they were so completely oversubscribed and it's a little bit different over there uh, there was a meal there was there was a nurse to meet with the moms and there was training prenatal and postnatal training there was a bible study there was there was stuff for the for the kids um, and we were just crammed into this room and uh, it's just one of five and they said we could we could quintuple the number of people we're helping if we had a bigger space or if we had uh, you know more people so we are making ongoing and and bigger investments I'll talk with you about that in coming weeks but uh, to try and help them uh, expand the churches I preached in a Persian fellowship that they started and there's there's need for other because it's all in different languages because there's so many different cultures so good stuff it was it was great to be there Uh, And I got back a few days ago, so if I fall asleep during my sermon, it's it's understandable. You should not fall asleep during my sermon, but if I do, um, please forgive me. So I want to talk about the the way forward, and I want to talk specifically about something I've had a hard time capturing in one word, is it courage? Is it grit? Is it zeal? Is it tenacity? Is it, is it willpower? I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely certain what one word to use, but I think we see it in Luther. As a matter of fact, I think Luther is a great example for us because uh, as you will hear, I'm going to talk a little bit about this, as you'll hear about Luther, he was not perfect by any means. Deeply flawed guy, probably crazy, just crazy enough to take on what he took on. Uh, he was earthy to the point of being crude he was stubborn to the point of being pig-headed he said things that oh we wish he didn't say but um, he was he was courageous and he was uh, he was all in for seeking God and he would do whatever he believed he needed to do to, to run after God And uh, but while he does that he also protects the gospel. So I heard this past week that nine out of ten Americans who go to church don't understand the gospel. I don't know where they came up with this statistic, but but uh, I do know that I am forever trying to say, you, you often think, because this is our default approach, that faith plus good works Equals a right relationship with God. Faith plus doing good things. Praying, going to church, Bible studies, serving the poor, giving our money away. Faith plus good works equals forgiveness of sins and eternal life. No. (laughs) That is a classic definition of religion. That is not the gospel. That is not the good news. The gospel, the good news is faith equals a right relationship with God and good works. So real faith, saving faith, trusting in Christ, real faith equals a right relationship with God based on the work of Jesus Christ. But that faith also will change us and we will serve. We will do good things. We will pursue God. We will decide that we're going to go to the end of the line. We will will be changed. So faith equals... A right relationship with God and good works. So Luther protects that. That's sort of what he does at the same time he is zealous and dogged in his determination. And so what we celebrate uh, on Tuesday, again, is the 500th anniversary of this event that happens at the end of the Middle Ages, right around the same time as the Renaissance, now, I know that you slept through your world civ class in high school if you even took it. So let me just back up and say that Western culture, those of us who, who are from the West, we, uh, that this emerges out of the mix of the Greek philosophers and the Hebrew prophets, right, the Old Testament. And, uh, and, and this launches Western culture the Greeks were particularly gifted in culture and philosophy and art and other things, but they weren't as good as warriors as the Romans. And so the Romans defeat the Greeks. They adopt almost all of the Greek culture, but they're the military and they're in charge. And they build the Roman empire and it's big and it's massive and it goes for a long time. And during the Roman empire, Jesus is born, right? God becomes a man and walks among us. And he lives and he loves and he teaches and, and he dies in our place. And that changes everything. And so at the time that Christ dies and is resurrected, the church is small. The Roman Empire is big. But over the next hundred or so years, you, you start to see this. The church, those made up who say, I'm in, I want the grace of Christ. I want the work of Christ. I'm going to be a Christ follower the church goes and grows like a brush fire in it and the roman empire begins to weaken and then at, at the end of the of the 4th uh, century the beginning of the 5th century rome falls right so the barbarians are at the gates that's where that phrase comes from so the goths and the visigoths and the vandals and the huns and all those people overthrow Rome the once powerful eternal city and uh, and and Rome, and Europe goes into the what we have traditionally called the dark ages and things get bad and it, whereas once there was this empire and there was trade and there was prosperity and there was literacy and there was poetry and there was theater and there was there was there was running water aqueducts and all this stuff all of that goes away Right? Everything crumbles. And, but the church, and this is where you hear about the Irish safe civilization, the, 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 the Benedictine monks are out in Europe and they form these communities of, of love and trust and hope and literacy and they keep things going. And eventually the church grows and the dark ages go away and we enter a period of time called both the Middle Ages or sometimes referred to as Christendom. And it's better than you heard. Uh, And I know my joke, standard joke, is people know almost nothing about this almost thousand-year period of time except what they see in Monty Python movies. But it was better than that, and uh, it goes for a long time. But then as a Protestant, so as one who sort of was protesting uh, some of the things that were going on, the, the argument is that the church... There's one church, the universal church. That's what Catholic means. It's universal. There's the Roman Catholic church. The church stumbles, and it begins to head down uh, some different paths. And uh, then we're going to get into the Renaissance, and then we we have the Reformation. When Luther, who is uh, a Catholic monk, protests what he sees to be some of these problems within the church. All kinds of people are trying to reform the church from within and without. Luther's is the one that God uses for whatever reason and it catches fire and it takes off. So he is particularly frustrated by the sale of indulgences. Which is sort of a get out of purgatory free card that you could you could buy at the church, and they were using it to fund the crusades and build St. Peter's Basilica and a number of other things. It was a great fundraising method. You could sort of say, I'm gonna get somebody out of purgatory. I'm gonna I wanna do this sin, but I'd like to know how much it's gonna cost me. Okay, yeah. Uh so there were some problems. Luther writes against this, and he nails ninety-five objections ninety five theses onto the door of the church in Wittenberg, and uh, so I had the opportunity to sort of follow along um, now you need to understand Luther comes to faith uh, during we think a lightning storm. He was a brilliant guy, uh, first guy in his family to go to college, and uh, he is he is studying in uh, Uh, He's a law student when he gets caught in a lightning storm, and he cries out and says, God, if you'll save me, I'll become a monk. Right? He's convinced he's going to die, because if you save me, I'll become a monk. And he doesn't die, and he feels honor-bound to become a monk, much to his father's frustration. And so, um, went to Erfurt and went to the monastery that he enrolled. He drops out of law school, he walks across the street, and he goes to this uh, August. Augustinian monastery and begins to study there. He gets a PhD in theology, and uh, but he's a very troubled monk. He has no sense of peace with God, and he tries as hard as he can. Long hours of prayer, confession, penance. He's he's doing everything that he he can think of to the point of being bizarre. And all the other monks are like Luther. Just give it a rest. Uh, three hours of confession every day you're not that exciting or interesting we're not you know you got to move on uh, but eventually uh, he graduates has his PhD and he goes he's assigned to teach at a university a new university in Wittenberg and uh, he goes there as a pastor and as a professor and it's there uh, especially as a pastor, that he's troubled by the sale of indulgences that is going on, so he writes this letter. It's a it's a call to a conference. He posts a blog essentially, and says these are the things that I'm frustrated with, and I'd like to have a discussion about it. He does it in Latin. He's not trying to rile up the crowds. He does it in Latin, but somebody takes it off the door, translates it into German, and the new, hot, cutting-edge technology of the Gutenberg press is used, and they make pamphlets, and they send it all over Germany, and suddenly the Reformation is off and running. So uh, I've I've got a picture of the castle church in in, uh, Wittenberg where he posted this. So there's the church. He went and again he posted on the bulletin board of the community, which was the door of the church, and um, and then uh, as soon as he does it, things begin to get a little bit more interesting. So, one of the next things that's going to happen is that he has a personal sort of breakthrough. So, in the Renaissance, one of the big calls of the Renaissance was that you you needed to go back to the sources. Ad Fontes was the Latin. So, back to the sources. So, at the, at the end of the at the end of Christendom, people who are frustrated with Christianity and the church want to go back to the Greeks and they want to go back all the way go back 800 years and and go back to these initial sources so a lot of scholars learn Greek Luther among them so now as a new professor in at this university in Wittenberg he's preparing his lectures he goes not to the Latin text that he has been reading all his life he goes to the Greek text and when he's preparing in Romans, he comes to Romans 1.17 and he he understands for the first time that the word that is used here, justificare, in the Latin, is, is a, it's a different word in the Greek. It's not as he thought that if I. Actively do all these things. If I pray, if I do penance, if I go to confession, if I give my money to the poor, if I do all these things, then I will be justified. I will be meritorious. God will love me. So Luther's trying all this and he's like, it's not working, right? I'm still a bad person. I'm not a good person. I still have a broken heart. I still want to do the wrong things. I may act as unselfishly as I can, but inside I am selfish. I'm not getting better like I thought. And then he reads in Romans, he understands, no, the word that's being used here is that, that you, we will be made righteous. We will be declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ will be credited to our account. Again, I often go to 2 Corinthians 5, 21 to talk about the great exchange. When we come to faith, right, on the, in the grand ledger of our life, right, we give Jesus our sin. He takes that. He gives us his righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. The righteousness of Christ comes. It is, it's an alien righteousness. It's not our goodness we're getting credit for Christ's goodness and we are declared righteous and Luther goes, "Oh my goodness, we have got this wrong. We are we are saying the wrong thing." So this is something else that he's going to begin to write about and talk about. And, and Luther sort of quickly becomes a bit of a celebrity. Everybody's talking about him and the things that he's writing. And he's a colorful character. And he's wicked smart. And he's funny in debates. And so he ends up in a debate in Leipzig with a guy named Eck. And Eck is a, is sort of defending the church. And Luther is attacking this. And they stack all of the books that Luther has written at this point on this you know, table, and they go, okay, you need to recant. You need to, you need to say I'm wrong. Uh, and Luther says, I need a day to think about it. Because he realizes that if he says, yeah, I've done this, that he's likely going to be declared a heretic, and perhaps he's going to be killed. So, uh, this isn't in the movie. I, I recommend the more recent Luther movie called Luther. Uh, it's not in the movie. It doesn't quite fit Hollywood script, but he says, I need, can I have a day to think about it? And uh, then he comes back after a day and he gives his famous statement where he says, right, unless I can be persuaded by sacred scripture or sound reasoning, I'm not going to change my mind. Uh, my heart is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. So help me God, I can do no other. Right, and then um, at that point, uh, he's he's sort of condemned. It's, it's, he thinks he's won the debate. Eck, Eck argues that he's won the debate, and Luther is now sideways, officially with the church, uh, and and he and the pope are having ugly uh, word contests. And so, it doesn't look good for Luther. But his sponsor, if you will. Frederick the Elector, who's sort of the king of Germany, but there is no Germany at the time. He's sort of in charge politically. He uh, is looking out for Luther. He has Luther kidnapped uh, and taken to the Wartburg Castle. And so uh, you go to the castle and you see where Luther lives incognito for two years as a as a knight. And you can go to the place where he studied and and uh, and and he translates the Bible during the next a uh, couple years and so he puts the bible into german so that the people can read it and this launches even more so probably the most important thing he does it, it launches the reformation and he's going to be in this prison uh, for or excuse me he's going to be in this castle for a couple years and then uh, there's sort of a, a a bit of a riot breaks out uh, back in wittenberg um, the people are taking his arguments and going to what he considers to be the extreme, so he goes back to Wittenberg. And um, so, uh, there's more to Luther. I learned a lot. It was fascinating. I, I did not know that Luther was actually more of an Old Testament scholar than a New Testament scholar. He'll spend the next 10 years translating the Old Testament. So when he's in, in, in Germany or in the castle, he translates the New Testament pretty quickly. The Old Testament will take uh, another decade, and he's working on translating the Bible up until his final, uh, final days. But um, I learned a lot about Luther, and uh, it was a great trip, and one of the things that I was I was particularly interested in, in paying attention to is, was there something from Luther's life to learn? I sort of know that it is the Reformation and all that, but I'm sort of looking at Luther's leadership. And uh, I came away with two takeaways. And one of them was that Luther feared God, and that made a lot of things simple. Right? If you fear God, then you sort of don't fear other things. And uh, Jesus will say that he will coach us to this end in, in Matthew 10, 28, uh, don't fear him who's able to destroy your body but unable to destroy your soul fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell right, don't, if you're going to fear fear God God is the one that has all the power and you don't have to worry about other people and so there's, there's a courage that comes out of that because of Luther's conviction and then I also saw that Luther um, Luther worked hard to prioritize his relationship with God and uh, he was just committed to keep at it. Are you? When it was hard and when it was easier, Luther was committed to keep at it. I think today many people think that a relationship with God ought to be easier than it is. And we, uh, when it's not as easy or when it didn't go in the way we think it ought to go... Then we're inclined to head in a different direction, and you don't see that with Luther. You see this resolve, this grit, this tenacity, this this I don't know. You know, I don't quite know what to call it. There's a there's a lot of discussion. You may be aware of this. A lot of discussion today, and especially in business contexts, uh, to talk about grit, tenacity, zeal, you know, willpower. And you see academic studies that, you know, tell you, okay, we're studying people who do this. And and then the the Navy SEALs are out on the lecture tour talking about how to be tough and how to have discipline and how to be, you know, make it happen. And you get lessons on goal setting and lessons on taking cold showers every morning. And, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there about how you can have um, greater sort of personal will and resolve. And I, I, I read a lot of this stuff, and I find some of it very interesting. And I, I think, wow, I wish I had more. I wish I was more like a Navy SEAL than I am, and or I wish my kids had more of this tenacity, or what, whatever. I, there's, there's something to this. But there's three things I want you to understand as we sort of try and frame this. First of all, you need to understand that this whole commitment, this decision to be doggedly determined that I'm going to follow God. It doesn't start with Luther, right? It certainly doesn't start with today's business literature, and it doesn't start with Luther, right? We back up to David, right, going against Goliath. We back up to Daniel and his friends uh, getting marched into Babylon. We back up to Paul, right? So there's this passage, Philippians 3. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal of the higher calling of God in Christ Jesus. Or here's Paul writing in, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It sounds like, well, he is talking about athletics, uh, not in the sense of winners and losers, but he's comparing the Christian life to that kind of athletic drive. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We an imperishable one. Well, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I pummel my body and subdue it lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So I, I want to suggest that there's a there's a piece of this, right, of the way forward that is Like, I'm going to get in shape. We don't, by accident as a rule, develop greater character and godliness. It just doesn't sort of happen by accident. And so there's some part of this that we need to bring. Which leads to the second point. I want to be sure you hear this. Willpower, drive, determination is just one part of the equation. So nothing that I'm talking about here is is going back to confession and prayer and humility and rest and restoration and, and other spiritual disciplines. What makes us successful may not make us faithful. And uh, there were people in the New Testament who were who were um, known for their drive and their zeal to pursue God, and they were called Pharisees, and Jesus lambasts them on a consistent basis and so uh, we need to understand that we can be tenacious in the wrong direction there's nothing here about the transformative power of the holy spirit right there's nothing there's nothing that i've talked about so far today that that suggests that which is all absolutely part of the equation but what i want you to hear today is clearly we have to show up Uh, we need some grit, we need some courage, we need some tenacity, we need some determination that we're going to seek God. Luther's a great example of that. This isn't rocket science. Some people make pursuit of God a higher priority than other people do. (laughs) And those that do, generally, if they're listening and they're, they're submitting to community and the word of God, generally they get closer to God. When I think to my friends who have faded spiritually, I'm struck that none of them really got derailed over a problem with the faith. Like there was a question that suddenly somebody posed to them and they couldn't answer it. It's sort of, they got seduced by an easier life, right? Have you? So um, last week, when I was in Istanbul on Sunday, I I preached at this little Persian fellowship that they were part of. But but our day started attending uh, an international church, the church that that this couple that we're supporting and their five boys under the age of 11 uh, that they attend. It's an international uh, expat church. And to get there... We we hike down a hill, so they li- they don't have a car, and they live on top of a hill. It's about a half mile up. About killed me to get my luggage up to their place, but you hike down, then you walk another quarter mile, and then we got on the, on a ferry across the Bosporus Strait, and then uh, all you know all nine of us, Joel Sensenig from Christchurch was with us, and uh, all nine of us, and then uh, and we got on a, uh, a subway. And we go a couple stops, and then we get out and we hike about a half mile. And then we drop the kids off a couple blocks away from the church because the church doesn't have space for kids either and them. So you drop the, the kids off, and then you go, and we, we go through security. Uh, the church meets in the basement of the Dutch embassy. Uh, and it has for 160 years. The place was packed. It's, it's not big, but it was packed. And uh, the pastor was preaching, and and his message was, um, which I found interesting given that the place was packed, was that you got to show up at church more. (laughs) And he said something that, that, that got my attention. He said, look, I don't expect that in the course of my ministry over decades that you will remember more than one or two sermons. He goes, I don't. I don't remember more than one or two sermons that I've ever heard. He said, but the consistent cadence of coming together with other people every week to worship, to pray, to, to submit to the apostles' teaching, uh, to encourage one another to love and good deeds. Whether you feel like it or not, he said, you got to do it. And uh, afterwards, I, I went to him and I said, uh, hey, you need another service, right? I mean, just, just one, you know, pastor to another. You need another service. And he goes, We got another service. And I go, Well, then you need another service. And he goes, Yeah, we don't have any, we don't, we don't have the space, we don't have the opportunity. We got services in the afternoon, they're in other places. And so I said, Well, good, good work. God bless you. You're doing great stuff. And I just walked away thinking, okay, he's calling the question. And he's saying, Look, one part of growing closer to God is just prioritizing growing closer to God. And it's not rocket science. You pursue God. You you spend time in prayer. I don't want to create rules. I don't want to be a legalist here. It's easy to go in that direction. But I don't want to give you a pass from this idea that we discipline ourselves for godliness. We work out our salvation. We press on towards the goal for the prize of the higher calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, uh, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we get to celebrate that. We thank you that we get to be reassured by your word that uh, everything that needs to be done for us to be forgiven has been done by Christ. We thank you that there's nothing we can do that would make you love us more. That you love us because you are love and you are good and we get a, we get a rest in that. Help us. Hold tight to those truths, even as we uh, understand and lean into the, the habits and the practices and the disciplines that will help us become more like Christ and grow closer to you. Guide us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.